Hey, everybody, this is Josh Barrow. This week's free episode of Serious Trouble is largely about Judge Arthur Engron and his huge judgment, uh, nearly $400 million that Donald Trump and his companies and associates are being forced to disgorge to the state of New York related to alleged business fraud. We're going to revisit that more next week, and we want your questions on it, but we have a good conversation on it for you this week. Uh, we also talk about the oral argument at the Supreme Court case about the Colorado ballot. Will Donald Trump appear there? The justices uh, seem pretty skeptical of the idea that Colorado can interpret the federal constitution and throw him off the ballot. Uh, and we also talk about the immunity issue that's been brought forth in the D.C. criminal case, which the Supreme Court is now deciding whether or not it's going to involve itself in. So that's this week's free episode. For paying subscribers, you also get our conversation about special counsel Robert Hur, uh, who says, among other things, that Joe Biden is is too old and, you know, arguably uh, mentally enfeebled to be a good defendant to bring charges against with a crime that requires a high level of intent. Ken and I talk about, you know, first, the, the propriety of a prosecutor considering that sort of argument, which does actually seem like a fairly good one for a defendant to bring in a theoretical case like that, and also the propriety of discussing it in public in this exact manner uh, that has clear political implications. And we talk more broadly about special counsels in this odd position that they're put in where they're supposed to talk about things a normal prosecutor wouldn't talk about. Uh, we also talk about an accuser against Joe Biden who's facing criminal charges, Alexander Smirnov. Uh, alleged that there was an effort uh, to bring a large bribe from Burisma to Joe Biden when he was vice president. Some Republican politicians have focused on those allegations. Now, uh, David Weiss, special counsel overseeing Hunter Biden, says the allegations are made up and he's bringing criminal charges against the guy he says who lied to the FBI about Hunter Biden. Uh, we talk about that and we talk about Georgia. Good God, this mess in Georgia. Uh, with uh, Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade having to talk about the exact, you know, timeline of their sexual relationship uh, and did it start before she hired him as special counsel uh, and, you know, an ex-friend of Fonnie Willis's being brought up on the stand to say that, you know, really the, the affair started much earlier than she claimed that it had. Anyway, uh, mess. Uh, we talk about the legal and also the political implications of it. Not a great position for a prosecutor to end up in. Anyway, if you want to hear that, go to SeriousTrouble.show and for $6 a month or $60 a year, then you'll be part of the community that is making this show possible, which we would very much appreciate. So again, uh, if you want to hear all of that, go to SeriousTrouble.show and upgrade. Thank you. Uh, Judge, uh, um, what's his name? Engeron. Eng I kept thinking Erdogan. Um, judge, <laughs> uh, that, that judge... Judge Ed Edragon, Ed Erdogan, Edragon, I believe. Here now, you've made me forget it. Engeron. Engeron. Judge Engeron, not the president Erwan? of Turkey, <laughs> not the fancy grocery store in Los Angeles, not the president of Turkey. No, I'm going to save this tape. <laughs> Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, it's Friday afternoon. Uh, we're taping at uh, 4 o'clock Eastern on Friday this week. We don't normally tape this late in the week. And we did this on purpose. Again, this is the second week in a row that we opened with talking about how we, we chose a smart time to tape the episode. We knew that Judge Engeron in New York was likely to issue a verdict in the civil trial, the case brought by the New York Attorney General alleging business fraud on the part of Donald Trump and various Trump business entities. 
And we knew that if we waited and waited and waited, eventually the ruling would come out because we, we know about our magical powers and we know that we could cause the ruling to be issued by starting our recording, but that would be a huge pain in the ass. We'd have to go back and record again to talk about it. So we, we were patient. That's right, Josh. We were patient enough and we got our hands on this ruling so we can actually discuss it. That's right. Once again, we have made destiny our bitch. Once again, <laughs> we have refused to participate in this system where we are overtaken by events. Yes. Now that we waited for this, God himself cannot make anything happen today to overtake this podcast. <laughs> and this ruling, uh, this is quite a ruling. Uh, nearly $400 million in disgorgement ordered on Donald Trump and his business entities and, and a little bit on other people like Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump. That is a lot of money that they're being ordered to give up to New York State. It is. So let, let's set the table a little bit here. This is the New York Attorney General's civil lawsuit against Trump and his confederates and organizations going forth in front of Judge Angoron uh, there in, in court in New York. Now, um, he had made some pretrial rulings, basically granting summary judgment on some of the case to the attorney general. And really, this is largely about damages. And sort of the key issues of the case were, were all these financial statements that Trump and his entities were issuing to banks and insurance companies, were they fraudulent? Did they fraudulently overstate his assets? And did that matter? Uh, because none of the banks uh, weren't paid back. None of the insurance uh, claims wound up being uh, triggered. So uh, those were the big uh, issues. And Trump's big defenses were actually all these statements were right. Uh, you know, whether an apartment is 20,000 square feet or 30,000 square feet is a matter of opinion. 10 or 30,000. Um, it was a three times overstatement. Right. And uh, frankly, all these banks wanted to give me loans and they would have given them no matter what I said. And there was no damages and it's all irrelevant. Uh, he did not buy those defenses, Josh. Yeah, no, it's the, the finding here was that there were significant, large financial damages to these banks. I mean, and, that, and that's the theory here, that the banks were the victim, that because Donald Trump overstated how good his financial situation was, the banks extended him credit at lower interest rates than they otherwise would have demanded. And so the, the largest fraction of this disgorgement that Judge Engeron has ordered has to do with the idea that the interest rate on these loans that he got was X, and we think it would have actually been Y if they weren't relying on this personal guarantee from Donald Trump that was based on fraudulent claims about his financial condition. And so here is all of the savings that we think Donald Trump received through these financial statements in the form of lower interest. But then that money, it doesn't go to the banks. The money goes to New York State effectively as a penalty. Right. And this concept is surprising to a lot of people, but you can face serious legal consequences when you lie to a bank to get a loan, even if you pay the loan back. It's common for criminal cases, federal criminal cases especially, to be uh, brought based on bank fraud, even if there is no loss the way you might define loss. It's not like you took the loan and ran away with it. Uh, you can still go to jail for that. So that part is not really outside the norm. Uh, it's somewhat outside the norm for there to be a civil case like this, where this type of thing is enforced through an attorney general uh, case like this one. And certainly the consequences here are quite gigantic and somewhat catastrophic for the Trump organization. Yeah. And then the, you see other very large numbers here that have to do with basically there were 
business deals that Trump was able to do because he had these financings. And then he sold his interests. In one case, in the the old post office building, which was the infamous Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C., he had a long lease on that, which he sold to another operator and made over $100 million in profit from that. And then also this golf course at Ferry Point in the Bronx in New York, where he also sold the the operating uh, license for that. And that was that was tens of millions of dollars. And so basically, the theory there was, well, you, you wouldn't have gotten this deal done without the finance things and you made a profit on the deal. And so we're going to force you uh, to give up those profits. Right. And those are equitable remedies. So this is something the judge brings up early in the decision. The reason this was a judge trial and not a jury trial was that the judge was considering equitable remedies, meaning ones that are in a judge's discretion, not ones that are uh, common law and that normally a jury has to decide. So that some of the other remedies the judge imposed here are barring Trump and some of the other figures involved from running a company in New York and being on its board for a certain number of years. He barred a couple of people from ever doing that again. And he made the temporary uh, supervisor of the Trump organizations into a more permanent one and expanded her brief uh, from saying that it's no longer just that she has to look at financial disclosures after the Trump companies make them. Now she has to approve them in advance. And so the, the one thing that Judge Engron did not do, that he'd laid some groundwork to do and that some people had been expecting, is what people were referring to as the corporate death penalty, where it would basically say that these various Trump business entities would no longer be allowed to do business in New York. He didn't make that decision. Does that mean that the Trump business can basically continue as it has with these key exceptions that, you know, these various members of the Trump family cannot for some number of years be officers or directors of the organizations. They obviously have to pay up this extremely large amount of money that is large even relative to Donald Trump's wealth. They also have some restrictions on their ability to do business with New York financial institutions for a number of years. But is this basically a set of things where the, the Trump organization can in some manner chug along under all of those restrictions? If they want to. So, yes, he, he had the opportunity here and was widely expected to basically permanently revoke all their licenses and tell them they can't do business at all. He doesn't do that. Uh, he basically has a path for reinstating the licenses that have been temporarily revoked. They can do business under this supervision, probably Paying the amount that's been ordered is going to be a prerequisite to continuing to do that. The question, though, Josh, I think is whether they want to. I think that Trump is not going to like any of these restrictions, not see them as legitimate. There are, the judge points out that they have not appointed new replacements for a lot of the positions in the organizations that have been vacant, various CFOs and, and other positions like that. And I have to question whether or not they're going to want to operate these entities under these types of restrictions. But so then what's the alternative there? They have to they'd have to liquidate? You know, sell uh, sell assets and and no longer do business in New York under these restrictions and write it off as, you know, New York is too woke now. It's impossible to do business there or join us in Florida. Everything's great <laughs> uh, and so forth. We're going to cover this more next week because as Ken and I were preparing to discuss this, I had a lot of questions about the logistics, about how exactly this is going to work in terms of when the money has to be put up. Uh, Trump is surely going to appeal this. But as we've discussed with the E. Jean Carroll case, you know, the fact that you're appealing a huge judgment doesn't mean that you don't have to come up with either the money or a financial institution to guarantee the money right away. And the, and the numbers are starting to add up to a lot relative to Donald Trump's financial capacity. Uh, and so that's another reason that, that we might expect 
affect the sale of some kinds of real estate here. Of course, you know, there, there are big tax implications to selling large appreciated real estate assets, which are reasons that people often, you know, they hesitate to do that. And when they do it, there's usually some complex financial engineering. Uh, you know, you want to find a way to roll over the the funds into some other asset that you can carry the basis over. And in any, in any case, it's not something that you ideally want to be doing on the fly under the thumb of a court judgment when you have, you know, mere days or weeks to come up with amounts of money. So I think we'll, we'll have more conversation next week about what that exactly is likely to look like. In, in terms of those logistics. But I, I, I think one key point there uh, is that, you know, even though Trump is sure to appeal this decision, and in some cases, you know, the ability to delay, delay, delay in court really serves a lot of his objectives. Here, a big problem with that is that even the delays, you know, that, that doesn't stop him from having to come up with these funds pretty soon, very likely. And, you know, especially if his intention is to become president again and then, you know, have greater abilities to delay civil litigation, that still doesn't obviate the fact that, you know, he has to be out this hundreds of millions of dollars in some way, have it put up in some manner, even as all of that is pending. It's true. This is a long opinion. It's nearly 100 pages. There's a lot of detail and it generates a lot of questions that I'm sure that we're going to continue to cover once we've had more time to look at it. It's actually a pretty good read, Josh. I know I'm Mm -hmm. a huge law nerd, but uh, it's engaging. Um, Judge Engeron goes through witness by witness and comments on them and makes credibility findings about each one. And he is relatively restrained. Uh, He does not show the absolute scorn that sometimes has come through in his in-court comments, but sort of in a fairly even-handed way says, well, you know, as to the Trump kids, here's where the documents contradicted them. And to that extent, I don't find them credible. Um, You know, he, he does a careful evaluation of our old friend Michael Cohen. It decides he believes Michael Cohen. Well, he says he's a convicted crook. And there's a theory under which you reject everything he says on that basis. But I believe him to the extent he's corroborated by documents that support what he's saying, uh, which, again, is a sort of middle ground type of way to go. He does bash Trump a bit for basically being intemperate and not answering questions on the stand. But any judge would do that. And I actually find the tone of the stuff about witnesses relatively restrained. Do you have any sense that, I mean, one thing we talked about with the second E. Jean Carroll trial is that Trump's attitude and behavior in the courtroom uh, were likely factors that drove up the amount of the judgment that was brought against him, that antagonizing the jury in the manner that he chose to do and that his attorney Alina Haba chose to do seems to have been a strategic mistake that cost him a great deal of money. Is there any sign in here that that's true in this case, that if Trump and his team had been more cooperative with Judge Engeron. I mean, remember, this this case involved personal attacks on the judge's law clerk that clearly made the judge very angry. Do you think that the, they would have gotten a better result in any way if they'd behaved better? No. I, I, my sense is that Rubicon was crossed before trial started with all the pre-trial conduct and records and evidence and that type of thing. What the judge did in this decision was very carefully and methodically use what happened at trial to make uh, his decision more bulletproof on appeal, to make credibility findings, which are the sort of thing that appellate courts are the least willing to overturn. So I, I think, if anything, maybe Trump's 
courtroom conduct and that of his lawyers made this decision more bulletproof on appeal, but I don't think it actually drove up the number. Uh, It's pretty clear that this is based on, uh, you know, stuff that Engeron was prepared to do based on the record already in front of him. As we said, we'll be devoting more time to this ruling next week. And uh, in our episode next week for premium subscribers, we're going to be taking questions uh, from listeners because we assume that there are going to be a lot of questions about this ruling. Ken, if people have questions, how should they send them in? Josh, they should send it to Rico Hotline at SeriousTrouble.show. Yes, send them there uh, and we will look at those questions and we're going to choose some of them uh, to answer next week. Let's talk about the Supreme Court. There's a number of uh, pieces of litigation that the Supreme Court is now involved in one way or another involving Donald Trump. I want to start first with the one that had oral arguments this week uh, about Colorado. There was that ruling from the Colorado Supreme Court holding that Donald Trump was ineligible to appear on the presidential ballot in Colorado because he's disqualified from being president by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment because he participated in an insurrection. Uh, And so the Supreme Court they heard those arguments. I'm always reluctant to talk a lot about oral argument because the justices try to ask good questions that probe at the weaknesses of arguments. It can be a mistake to read into that, that they necessarily agree uh, with the side uh, that they are essentially questioning on behalf of. They're, they're, you know, they're trying to kick the tires and test out arguments. But uh, looking at this oral argument, the sense has been that the justices were very skeptical of the ruling that the Colorado Supreme Court made here. Yes, I, I agree. You have to be careful with uh, reading the tea leaves from argument, just as you do from jury notes. But sometimes it's clear. And the the almost overwhelming consensus of people who observing it was that the court, in, in a fairly bipartisan way, was expressing concern with the concept that states could do this unilaterally, decide to disqualify uh, a president based on this particular part of the 14th Amendment. And they were much tougher on Colorado's lawyer than they were um, on uh, the attorneys defending Trump. So I I think that uh, the reading of it is pretty clearly that the, the ruling is not going to survive. And it seems likely that the basis is going to be the idea that states can't do this unilaterally. Uh, what remains to be seen is where the rest of that goes. Do they say that Congress has to do something? Uh, is it self-executing by Congress? It, it's just not clear yet. Mm-hmm. One thing that I've been a little bit skeptical of in this whole conversation, people have raised all of these good policy arguments about why it doesn't make a lot of sense to have secretaries of state in the states effectively in the position of figuring out this fairly complex question of what this provision of the 14th Amendment means. You get this sort of randomness where, you know, depending on which trial court it happens to end up in front of in which state, you can get a different ruling that then ends up getting a lot of deference, especially on factual questions as you move up through the courts. It doesn't seem like a very good way to decide who is allowed to run for president. But I don't know that that necessarily means that it's not the way that was set up by the 14th Amendment. There's this sort of assumption that the 14th Amendment has to be smart, that it has to be well-drafted, and that whatever rule it came up with has to be one that would be sort of a sensible way to set up an electoral system. And, you know, the 14th Amendment, it also says the debts of the United States shall not be questioned. 
it's not really clear what that means and who's not allowed to question them. This is this is set up a bunch of sort of dumb conversations about the debt limit and people arguing about, you know, what does this provision of the 14th Amendment really mean? And I just, you know, I'm open to the idea that the drafters of the 14th Amendment screwed up in various ways and came up with things that didn't work necessarily very well. And that just because the implications of the 14th Amendment seem implausible, that doesn't mean it's not actually what the amendment says. Sure. I, I think that's a good point. I, I don't think we can assume that always that the particular course uh, or strategy they any of the drafters of the original constitution or any of the amendments did were wise or plausible. I mean, anyone who's seen Hamilton knows that the Constitution originally provided that Donald Trump should have been Joe Biden's vice president uh, <laughs> as these things were originally started, which does not seem like a good idea. So it's completely possible that the framers of the 14th Amendment intended this sort of crazy course of events that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us that isn't plausible. Let's talk about some other Supreme Court matters. Uh, the January 6th case, uh, where uh, a panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against Donald Trump, said he is not immune from prosecution uh, for acts that he committed while he was president. Uh, there has been an appeal now to the Supreme Court, and listeners will recall that decision from the appeals court. It was issued on February 6th. It was stayed until February 12th, unless there was uh, an application for a stay from the Supreme Court, in which case the stay was going to persist until the Supreme Court had decided whether it was going to further stay the case. So that's where we are now. There has been that application. There have been filings that have come from uh, from Trump and from Jack Smith and from Trump's side again. Uh, and now we're waiting for them to decide whether they're going to take the case. But the first thing that they will decide, and it's very likely to align with that, is whether they're going to stay the proceedings pending a decision about taking the case. So how, how soon are we likely to know whether the Supreme Court is going to look at this or not? Uh, soon enough that I was checking while you were talking, Josh, uh, <laughs> to see if it happened while we were recording this. So uh, it could happen literally any time. And, you know, the moving parts are that they could simply deny the stay and um, wait to decide on whether or not to review. Uh, the uh, Jack Smith asked them basically either to deny the stay or alternatively to treat it as a request for cert, grant cert, and decide in March to keep things marching. So any of those things could happen. Sorry, they didn't he ask five, them to hear it in March and decide by June? You might be right it's to hear it in March. Yes. Uh, but so any number of things could happen. It needs five votes to get a stay. There are some traditions of the court under which if four people want to grant cert, uh, another person will agree as a courtesy and make it five, but that may not be honored anymore. So the court has every reason to make this particular decision relatively rapidly, and uh, we'll, see, uh, we'll see when we see. It would not surprise me at all for it to be in the next week. And then some, this is not Supreme Court action, but also happening in Washington, D.C. Uh, Joe Biden, in some sense, had a good uh, last week, week and a half, in that uh, special counsel Robert Herr decided at the end of last week not to bring criminal charges against him related to his handling of classified documents. But Biden and his team were still unhappy with the report that came out from special counsel Herr, mostly because it had a discussion of why not to bring the charges. And there were a number of reasons that they said it would be difficult to prove that he had the requisite intent 
to retain classified documents. It would would not be a great case to bring. One of the things that uh, Robert Hurst said was that Biden would be able to present himself as a defendant um, as uh, as a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory, which would make it especially hard to demonstrate that he had, in fact, intended and knew at at all times what he was doing with these documents, intended to retain them. Uh, they're obviously not happy with that description of him as having a poor memory. Was it improper for Robert Hur to make that analysis and to disclose it publicly? Uh, it certainly wasn't improper to to make the analysis. I think the, the question about it was... That's the end of this week's free episode of Serious Trouble. Uh, if you would like to hear about Georgia and the drama involving Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade and Judge Scott McAfee uh, and having to hear about, you know, Fonnie Willis can't have been dating Nathan Wade in 2020 because she was dating some DJ... That's what her father says. Um, if you want to hear about that and also want to hear about special counsel Robert Hur um, and his uh, disparaging remarks about Joe Biden's age that probably actually were relevant to whether you could prosecute Joe Biden, but that uh, were quite politically inconvenient for the president and raised a lot of questions about whether the Justice Department should really be talking about that sort of thing. Uh, if you want to hear about all that, uh, our conversation about that, go to SeriousTrouble.show, become a paying subscriber. Get that full episode. Get every full episode, approximately 50 episodes a year. It's just $6 a month or $60 a year. And uh, we think that we can be an even better part of your week-to-week life if you join us. So again, go to SeriousTrouble.show, become a paying subscriber, and thank you. <laughs>